Our next presenter is Professor Moon Ho Zhang, who teaches race, politics, and Asian American history at the University of Washington, Seattle, and he will discuss why we can't trust the U.S. state. So please welcome him to the podium. All right, I'd like to begin by thanking Stephanie for spearheading this effort, and thank you all for showing up this morning. Back in September, within weeks of Michael Brown's murder and everything that followed in Ferguson and beyond, my younger daughter started second grade. She came home the second day looking a little upset, and I asked her why. She told me that her teacher was going to have the whole class say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. My immediate response was, I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> now, I know I had to grow up saying the pledge every morning, but this is supposedly progressive Seattle in the blue state of Washington. It was 2014, not 1954. I ranted about how outrageous that was. When I finally shut up, my daughter explained what was bothering her. She didn't know the words to the Pledge of Allegiance, and she was afraid that she would have to lead the class in, in the, saying the pledge one morning. So we Googled the damn thing because I couldn't remember all of the words exactly, right? As I read the pledge out loud with her, I was thinking the same thing that I had thought minutes earlier. What the? Now, I begin there to point out the obvious. We live in a society where we can't escape the U.S. state and its insistence on allegiance and loyalty. There are historical reasons behind my visceral response. For many of us, the U.S. state, and when I say the U.S. state, I mean all levels of government, the local, state, or federal, the U.S. state has historically been constructed not for our protection. Rather, the U.S. state has been constructed to protect America from us, and what we represent. The U.S. state has been the embodiment and instrument of white supremacy far more than it has been a means to ending it. In a nutshell, that's why we cannot trust the U.S. state. Now, that may seem like a simple and perhaps simplifying point, but I think it's worth thinking about at least for the next 10 minutes. Let's begin with the Constitution. Okay, in drafting the Constitution, the Founding Fathers took great pains not to mention the words slave and slavery. They thought it would, those words would defile the document that would found a free republic. That would have been too hypocritical, but there were three critical references to slavery. Do you know what those three references were? Without Googling <laughs> what they were? Three-fifths compromise, so the infamous three-fifths clause that the election, elections would be based on, uh, the exact words are, the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, that is indentured servants, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. Yeah, slave trade, which was referred to as 
the migration of imp or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit. That's the slave trade. Uh, the, the Constitution said that Congress could not prohibit the slave trade before 1808. It did not say it would end it in 1808. It said that it had to continue at least until 1808. And then the third reference was the Fugitive Slave Clause. That is, persons held to service, slaves, to be had to be delivered up to those who claim them if they crossed state lines. So the Constitution actually strengthened the institution of slavery. Now, the Fugitive Slave Clause marks citizens of the United States. It demanded that they police the enslaved not only in the South, but in every state of the Union. The Fugitive Slave Clause defound, defined the founding relationship between the U.S. state and black people, a relationship rooted in property rights. The clause reflected and produced a clear racial divide between those who were policed and those who were doing the policing. And that racial divide is still with us today. But at least the Founding Fathers didn't mention the word slave or slavery. For the first 100 years and beyond, two of the most important functions of the U.S. federal government had everything to do with advancing the U.S. empire, and that was to wage wars, mostly with American Indians, and to sign treaties, again, mostly with American Indians. And U.S. imperial wars would make millions, and now potentially billions of people potentially subject to U.S. state violence from what is now the American Southwest and Hawaii to the Philippines, Latin America and the Caribbean, Korea, Vietnam, the Middle East and Afghanistan. The places and peoples have changed over the years, but the underlying logic of race and empire has not changed. All of these wars were bloody and violent but they were all deemed necessary for civilization, for freedom, for democracy. Now, in response to black struggles for freedom before and during the Civil War, the U.S. government incorporated major amendments to the Constitution that abolished slavery and formally extended citizenship rights to African Americans, or at least African American men. These were big concessions by the state. But Reconstruction ended almost as soon as it began as local, state, and federal governments, in the words of W.E.B. Du Bois, murdered democracy in the United States so completely that the world does not recognize its corpse. And it was shortly after Reconstruction that the U.S. government began passing laws on immigration. But how could the so-called nation of immigrants bar people from its shores? The Supreme Court provided the rationale in a monumental decision sanctioning Chinese exclusion in 1889. The court ruled that the federal government had the power to enact laws for the nation's protection and security. That was its foremost duty. The Supreme Court added that if the U.S. government categorized foreigners of a different race as dangerous to its peace and security, as it did with the Chinese, that designation could not be challenged or disputed. 
It did not matter that the Chinese were not waging war against the United States. Chinese exclusion, in the, according to the Supreme Court, was a matter of national security. That logic of race and national security has persisted not only in matters of immigration to this day, but also in the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, in anti-communist laws on the detention of subversives during an internal security emergency during the Cold War, and more recently, in the war on terror. All of this is to say, for many of our communities, we have been the targets of US state violence, as slaves, as illegal immigrants, as colonial subjects. Deemed savage, barbarian, slavish, and disloyal, we have been vilified and racialized as threats to US national security. And for most of our history, we have sought protection from the violence enabled and inflicted by the U.S. state. At the same time, aggrieved communities have demanded change in part by appealing to the federal government. That's not all they did, but it made sense. It was a sensible strategy. When lynching of African Americans escalated dramatically in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, local and state governments did absolutely nothing. In fact, lynch mobs more often than not included the active participation of local police officers and government officials. In that context, African Americans demanded that the federal government pass an anti-lynching bill. That is to make lynching a federal crime. Congress never passed an anti-lynching law. So even as African-American individuals and organizations made their appeals to the federal government for civil rights pretty much throughout the 20th century, they also recognized the irony, the limits of those appeals. As my colleague Nikhil Singh has argued, that defined the radicalism of the black freedom movement. What made the movement radical and so effective was not a certain policy position or a particular ideology or strategy. What made it radical and effective was its heterogeneity, its flexibility, its ability to embrace and exploit American nationalism even as it interrogated and exposed America's limitations and contradictions. That is, the black freedom movement as a whole made demands on the US state to hold it accountable, to demand equal citizenship rights for all. At the same time, it also raised questions on the inherent limits of the US state and it revealed a larger history of race, empire, and state violence. What do I mean by that? By that? Uh, let me give you a quick example. Uh, this past Monday was MLK Day, uh, when we hear his I Have a Dream speech over and over again. Uh, now, it's a wonderful speech, especially when he talks about how the 1963 march served, quote, to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. Um, and in that speech, King also said, we can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. 
Now, when King demanded citizenship rights for African Americans, speaking of a dream, as he put it, deeply rooted in the American dream, that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, if you listen carefully, you can hear his skepticism, the irony of what he's saying. And we know King's vision and critique ran much deeper. Within four years, he would be condemning U.S. state violence in Vietnam. He would call the U.S. government the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, and he identified as a citizen of the world. Racial justice could not be limited to American citizens. The struggle for racial justice meant embracing a sense of belonging beyond America and confronting the violence orchestrated by the U.S. state. And I think King's vision provides important lessons for us today. We need to continue to make demands on the state to hold it accountable. We need to demand an end to police brutality, to demand the enforcement of civil rights and voting rights, to demand immigration reforms, to demand an end to deportations. Even as we do so, we need to recognize that that will never be the end. We need to recognize that we will not find racial justice in and through the U.S. state. As Arundhati Roy has been arguing so eloquently over the past decade, we should not see ourselves as American citizens or Indian citizens or whatever passport we may be carrying. She says she speaks, writes, and acts as a subject of the American empire. So even as many of us demand change as Americans, let's not forget that larger history. We were and remain racialized subjects of the U.S. empire, the racialized targets of U.S. state violence. That is something that we cannot forget. The past is always present. And that is the vision that Ferguson has helped to unleash. In August of last year, when Ferguson emerged as the epicenter of racial politics, activists, con activists congregating there put out an amazing statement. So let me conclude with their powerful words and vision. They said, we are striving for a world where we deal with harm in our communities through healing, love, and kinship. This means an end to state-sponsored violence, including the excessive use of force by law enforcement. Mass incarceration and the over-criminalization of black and brown people must forever end, leaving in its place a culture that embraces our histories and stories. This means an end to racial bias, bias and white supremacy in all its forms. They didn't stop there, though. They went on. Our dreams are directly linked with those resisting militarism, war, and state repression around the world. We will achieve this new beloved community hand in hand, step by step, in global solidarity with all people committed to lasting peace and full justice. Now that is a statement I can pledge allegiance to. Thank you.